0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Uh, in the, uh, the cartoon frames, the first frame shows you Charlie Brown and Linus facing towards you looking out at the world. In the next frame, Linus looks at Charlie and he says, It's fair weather today, Charlie Brown. In the third frame... Charlie and Linus are, again, looking out at the world. In the fourth frame, Linus is looking at Charlie as Charlie looks out at you. And Charlie says, well, then where are all my friends? Fair-weather friends. It's pretty sad when even on a fair-weather day, you don't have uh, any friends. But the interesting thing to me about this cartoon is, as far as I can tell, nobody had a better friend, a more committed friend, than Charlie Brown had in Linus, right? He's standing right next to you, Linus. Well, I want to say that in the velocity of life today, it can be very hard to notice the friends in our lives. With the velocity of life today, it can be very hard to be present to somebody who simply needs a friend? Abraham Lincoln stood up one night to give a toast. It was a public dinner in Springfield, Illinois, in the summer of 1837. He was 38 years old. As Lincoln raised a glass, he looked around the room and he saw several faces that he recognized. And as sometimes can happen on occasion like that, I believe got flushed with emotion, and his cheeks were hot. And he said. All our friends. They are too numerous to be now named individually. While there is no one of them who is not too dear to be forgotten or neglected. Or if you like, as Bilbo Baggins said on his birthday when he stood to give a toast, 111 years is far too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable Hobbits. I don't know half of you, half as well as I should like. And I like less than half of you, half as well as you deserve. (laughs) And as the whole party got silent and everybody tries to figure out, have we just been insulted? You and I are left to contemplate the value of our friends. This morning we think about a wonderful friendship. The friendship between David and Jonathan in the first millennium B.C., We're going to find this in the Bible in First Samuel chapter twenty, verses twelve through seventeen. I want you to pull out your Bible if you brought one today, or open up the Bible, the black book, and the pew rack in front of you, and you'll find that on page two hundred and thirty-one in the pew Bible. It's First Samuel chapter twenty, verses twelve through seventeen. Before we read it, let me just set the stage. Two men are standing in a field. David and Jonathan. These two men are speaking in hushed tones with an air of fear in their voices because they're both in trouble. David is in trouble because Jonathan's father, King Saul, is out for his life. Jonathan is in trouble because there is nothing he would do, including giving his life, to see David succeed in life. And as these two men stand here, they're trying to work out a plan to keep David safe. Now, let's stand, if you're able, and read together 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 12 through 17. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, we're reading his holy word. Jonathan said to David, By the Lord, the God of Israel, when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or on the third day, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But if my father intends to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away so that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, If I am still alive, show me the faithful love of the Lord. But if I die, never cut off your faithful love from my house, even if the Lord were to cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Thus Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord seek out the enemies of David. Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, For he loved him as he loved his own life. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. All right, Jonathan, he's no fair weather friend, right? I mean, he gives his all to this relationship. We learn about this relationship in chapter 18 of this book. The theme for chapter 18 of this book, 1 Samuel, is that everybody loves God. David. Everybody does. You see that in that chapter. Why? Because he's just killed Goliath. This is David's breakout moment, right? you got this high school kid, teenage, uh, he, he, living in obscurity, but all of a sudden you, you, you slay the, the, the giant, and you are an instant celebrity. This is kind of his Justin Bieber moment, right? Somebody's like, bro, you just killed David for me. Um, he has now the spotlight on him. And he's got a lot of fans. Everybody's his fan, except for two people. Saul, the king, who can't tolerate a rival among his people. And Jonathan, Saul's son. Because Jonathan is the guy who will step out of the adoring crowds and be more than a fan, a committed friend. We read in Uh, Chapter 18, verse 1 The soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. He's bound. If you drill into that word bound, you find a deeper reality in the Old Testament, and the word for that is covenant. Just two verses later, the writer tells us that Jonathan made a covenant uh, with David. And if you want to understand what committed friendship, what real countercultural friendship, the kind of friendship that you and I yearn for is, you have to understand this word, covenant. And I want to give you a definition this morning in three parts. But actually, I want the text to help us define it. The first part is this A covenant is a bond I choose, a bond I choose. This speaks to the motivation of friends. And you'll notice that Jonathan enters into the friendship freely. If you were looking at 1 Samuel 18, you'll see that before he makes a covenant with David, Jonathan, we're told, loves David. So there's no element of duty or obligation or law or, oh, I've got to hang out with David today. In Jonathan, he loves David. In the first verse of chapter 19, it says, he delighted in David. So he enters freely. A covenant is a bond I choose. The second part of the definition is for a friend I serve. Covenant is a bond I choose for a friend I serve. And this speaks uh, of the character of true friendship. Service. Covenant service. The Bible has a special word for that as well. It's chesed. Chesed. It means kindness, and it comes up throughout this chapter. For example, in verse 8, you'll see David invoking the covenant uh, here in chapter 20. And and he says, therefore, deal kindly with your servant. Service is the character of, of friendship. And when he says deal kindly with your servant, the word deal kindly means show or do or perform chesed, kindness. Put me ahead of you, David is saying. And that's the nature of their relationship. They serve one another. Jonathan is not in it for his sake. Jonathan is in it for David's sake. How can I serve you? And then the third element of the definition is before a God who is kind. A covenant is a bond I choose for a friend I serve before a God who is kind. We see in verse 8, if you look deeper into the verse, this relationship is described as a sacred covenant. You may notice a footnote there if you're reading the NRSV, it's an E. And if you look at the bottom of the page, you'll see the letter E tells us that sacred covenant, literally in Hebrew, could be translated covenant of the Lord, which means God is in the relationship. God is there. You see that again if you look at verse 42 down here at the end of the chapter. This time Jonathan's saying, the Lord shall be between me and you. This is not just a friendship between two men. No. When you're talking about a covenant, you're talking about three parties. David, Jonathan, and their Lord. I love what we read about um, here in verse 14. Here this time Jonathan says, if I am still alive, show me the faithful love of the Lord. Notice that's the Hesed, the kindness of the Lord. You show me. Notice what he's not saying. He's saying, David, I want me to show you to show me your kindness. He's saying, David, I want you to show me our Lord's kindness. This is a transcendent friendship. This is a spiritual relationship. One in which both parties fully expect that in this friendship, God Himself will disclose his kindness through one another as they serve. Wow. And that's, that's a powerful relationship. A covenant is a bond I choose for a friend I serve before a God who's kind. Remember when we were looking at Proverbs, we saw chapter 18, verse 24, that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I want to ask you this morning if you have that kind of a friend in your life. I want to ask you this morning to consider whether you are that kind of a friend in the life of somebody else. I love the story of um, Lone Ranger and Tonto. You know, they were always getting into trouble. One day they got into trouble, and Tonto says to Lone Ranger, uh, Lone Ranger says to Tonto, excuse me, Tonto, we're surrounded by Indians. And uh, Tonto looks back at him and says, what do you mean, we, pale face? a committed friend. I know we have lots of friends today. Um, we friend indiscriminately these days on Facebook. I, thanks to you, I think I have almost 1,000 friends. Does that make me popular? <laughs> I'm not so sure. There's a debate right now among sociologists uh, about whether our technology makes us more connected or less connected. I think the jury is still out on the question But I love what I read in a magazine, Atlantic Magazine article a little while ago. Stephen Marsh says, as he's talking about loneliness in America, a connection is not a bond. Think about that. A connection is not a bond. And then Marsh adds, and this is not a minor revelation. These two men are bound together on the soulish level of their lives. I told you I lived for uh, about five years in Los Angeles before coming up to Seattle, and Los Angeles has everything to do with fans, and almost nothing to do with friends. I I say that the Los Angeles has the, the the social capital equivalent of Death Valley. You know, everybody loves everybody, but nobody loves anybody. And I have a theory about that. It's not Hollywood. Uh, actually my theory is that so many people in LA work as independent contractors. Frankly, as more and more people are working in Seattle that way, you're kind of your own boss and you're always looking for work and so uh, you can't afford to get on anybody's bad side because they might be the contact you need for your next gig. And if they're not, you suspect that probably it's a contact of that contact that you need. And so pretty soon people aren't friends anymore, they're contacts. And you get into the Lonely place of no longer being able to ask of somebody, what can I do for you? You find yourself almost compelled to ask them, what can you do for me? And that is the beginning of the end for healthy relationships. David and Jonathan are not asking that question of each other. They're asking the servants question, what can I do to you? These two men are standing in a field with an expectation that as they ask the question, what can I do for you, the kindness of God is what shows up in the space in between them. I want you just to think for a second about Jonathan. You could never see him in L.A. I'm not even sure you could see him in Seattle. Jonathan. Jonathan is the crown prince. He's the son of the king of Israel. He's destined to be the second king of Israel, the most powerful man in that whole nation. And if his career were to go like David's or Jonathan or, or Solomon, uh, this guy, Jonathan, would be an international sensation with power that penetrates the ancient Near East. Jonathan, it's this close. Your heart beat away. You don't have to do anything. And soon you'll be there. And how does Jonathan feel about that? I'd rather give it to my friend David. Thank you very much. Chapter 18, Jonathan takes the insignia on the royal robe and his armor that belongs to a prince, and he says, David, I want you to put this on you. Right here in our chapter 20, when he says, David, may the spirit that was on my father be on you, he's asking for David to receive the charisma of the king. I want you to have it. I want you to take my place. I want you to succeed. What can I do to help you, David? That's Jonathan. Don't you wish you had a friend like that? Don't you wish you had a friend like that in your life who thought about career in terms of your career, not their career? I going to suggest to you this morning that you do have a friend exactly Like that and more. Because the teaching of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is the great servant king towards whom Jonathan points in this passage. Jesus is God binding himself to you, Jesus is God making covenant friendship with you. He gathers with his disciples in the upper room around a table on the night that he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. And he looks into their eyes, as I believe this morning, he looks into your eyes and he says, I didn't bring you here to make you my servant. I brought you here to make you my friend. You are my friend. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for his friend. I've chosen to lay down my life for you. The old hymn says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what a peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. If you can't see Jesus as your friend this morning, then I want to tell you you're pulling a Charlie Brown because you got someone standing right next to you who says, let's do this thing together. He has bound his soul to your soul. Think about how Jonathan depicts our servant king. Philippians 2, the apostle Paul, filled with an imagination that perhaps recalls Jonathan, says that, you know, Jesus, though he's in the form of God, did not think equality with God's thing to be grasped. Jesus, the son of God, was in the palace of heaven. And one day he says, you know what? I want somebody else up here on this throne instead of me. He emptied himself, he took the form of a servant, He left the palace. He went out into the dangers of the field. He engaged with you and me and all of humanity. He died on the cross for sins that he would never want us to have to die. He says, Father, throw the spirit me. And if you and I think for a moment, well, we don't deserve that, well, we're absolutely right. David doesn't deserve to be king of Israel either, but Jonathan has pledged that that will be the case. And Jesus has pledged that you will rule over the principalities and the powers in him. You're going to the throne because he has loved you with his life. Now, you're not alone in this covenant. We're in it together. The word testament when we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, did you know that the word testament is the English translation of the Greek word for covenant? So when we talk about the Bible in two parts, the Old Testament is the covenant that God made with Israel. The New Testament is the covenant that God made through Jesus Christ with all peoples. And you and I are part of a community that's a a covenant community. And when we put one another first, we show the kindness of God to one another. And our mission is to show the kindness of God of God to the world, to the people around us, near and far. Several years ago, 20 years ago, I met a man named Steve. And Steve has become my closest friend in life. I didn't even notice at the time that Steve was standing right next to me. There were a lot of people in my life, crowded with people. But it it turned out now, 20 years later, that Steve has been really the friend and Steve was there when our children were born. Steve was there when my marriage was strained. Steve was there when uh, I had to choose a, a, another job. Steve was there when I struggled with that job. Steve was there. He was here when you called me to come here. He flew up from California to be a part of the installation a service. And even now, Steve is with me. Every two days, we talk together on the phone because Steve has cancer. And uh, we just found out two days ago, as we talked, that he has 90% of his bone marrow is um, toxic with cancer. And it's funny how you begin to appreciate the people in your lives when you think you're about to lose them. But it's amazing as we pray together, I think I'm doing this, praying with him on the phone uh, so that I can care for him and walk through this with him. But he's always thinking about me. He's always asking about my challenges. He's always praying for me, as far as I can tell, more than I'm praying for him. And he said something so fascinating the last time we talked. Just as we were about to hang up, he said, George, I want to tell you, because of Jesus Christ, I am filled with joy, real joy like I've never known before. He says, it's weird. I can't explain it to you. He says, I'm the happiest guy on the planet who's got his marrow 90% filled with cancer. And I hung up the phone, and I burst into tears, and I said, the Lord has really been between us, me and Steve. It's been about something so much bigger than him and me. Now, you need a friend like that, too, and you can have one, and you need to be a friend like that to somebody else, and you can be one. Everybody needs it. That's the great thing you can count on. It doesn't mean if, whether it's in the boardroom or on the streets. People around you are created for relationship. They deep down yearn for the relationship that God wants us to have. It's just the way God's made us. I have a friend who uh, got to know a homeless woman. Uh, she hung out at a park near his coffee shop, and he'd talk with her from time to time, occasionally give her a buck or something like that. One day, she was crying. He walked over to her, and she had her baby carriage with her belongings, her cat. But her dog was not moving. The dog had died. Sitting at her feet as she wept. And my friend asked her about it, and he said, I didn't know what to do. And I told her I loved her. And I pulled in my wallet, and I pulled out some money to help her. And then I found a flower, and I picked it, and I walked over, and I laid the flower on top of her dog. It wasn't that big of a deal to me, he said, but I found out how big of a deal it was to her. He I'd forgotten that everybody kind of knew this woman because she talked to everybody, and the whole community was soon hearing about how much I loved her. He it was amazing. The word spread, and at the church, somebody buried her dog for her. Somebody else reached in and took her into the house, and he said, George, today she's not homeless anymore. Well, that's not about him. That's not about the people at the church. That's about the kindness of the God before whom we live when we engage one another in friendship. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Jesus is bound to you. Let's be bound to one another. Take that home. Jesus is bound to you. Let's be bound to others. David would be this kind of a friend. After Jonathan would die, along with Saul, hung on a wall... After the dust of the violence, of political intrigue would settle, David would be left alone without his friend. And what would he do? He would find out that Saul had a son who still survived. He survived probably because he was handicapped, because he lived on the margin of society. His name was Mephibosheth. When Mephibosheth was five years old, a nurse, tragically, had had, had dropped him and damaged his feet permanently. And no one could come to him anymore and say, what can you do for me? And so he was pushed to the outside, but David went and found him. Because he was bound to his friend Jonathan, he went and found Mephibosheth and he brought him to his table and he sat and he insisted that night after night he sit at the table, the royal table with David. He gave him Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth the, the, the royal lands of Saul. He saved his life when nobody else would. i want to ask you this morning, who's standing next to you? Who's there? Maybe somebody that's new in your life. Maybe it's somebody that's stood there for decades. And it's only now time to notice in a fresh way. Abraham Lincoln, in a letter, wrote, the better part of one's life consists of his friendships. And I believe that. I don't know if you know this, but uh, there's a statue in Volunteer Park. It's William Henry Seward. William Henry Seward is in, 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 in Volunteer Park because he's the guy that bought Alaska. Alaska. But you know what, I don't think we have a statue of Abraham Lincoln uh, here in Seattle. And as I saw Seward, I got a little choked up the other day because I love Abraham Lincoln. But what you need to know about Abraham Lincoln is he had a friend in William Henry Seward. Seward was the man, if you know your history, maybe you saw Lincoln or better, you've read uh, um, Doris Kearns Goodwin's Team of Rivals. Seward was the man who should have won the 1860 election By by all rights, he was qualified. The governor of New York was a uh, New York U.S. senator. He was the guy, but through a fluke of a a divided vote, Lincoln popped out the winner. These two guys had been enemies, had been rivals. Lincoln reaches out to Seward and says, man, I need you. And he made him Secretary of State, brought him into his cabinet. At the end of his life, I think William Henry Seward would look back and say there's something better than being the President of the United States, and that's being a friend. And I just learned this as a, uh, through the New Yorker. There's an article re- recently written about the relationship of these two men. Seward and Lincoln co wrote the last paragraph of Lincoln's first inaugural address, and I want to read it to you as we close. Both men writing say, We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union. When again touched, as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature." In a moment, I'm going to give you just some quiet time as our band plays and invite you to be before the Lord and think about the friends uh, in your life and the friend that you're called to be. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have loved us with your life, that you have bound our soul to your soul so that Jesus not only stands by our side, but through his Holy Spirit lives within us to befriend us. Help us to know what it means to live loved by you and so befriended that we are empowered to rule in this life and in the life to come. Help us to name the people you are giving us in whose lives we are to be your presence and simply stand and care and serve. We pray in the name of our friend Jesus Christ. Amen.